0: Welcome to the Collective West Podcast.
1: This is a podcast dedicated to supporting young people in Melbourne's West.
0: My name is Julia
1: and I'm Michael. Geoffrey Lai is a social entrepreneur working with communities in Melbourne's West. A first-generation migrant from Hong Kong, Jeff has lived in the West ever since arriving when he was three years old. Passionate about education and becoming ever more aware of the disparities in career and education outcomes experienced by young people in his community, he founded Equal Ed. A social enterprise that aims to empower young people has drivers of change through academic support, networks, skills, and active involvement. In a past life, he studied neuroscience and did a brief stint in banking before deciding that lab work and corporate life was not for him. These days, he'll still get super excited when meeting someone doing neuro research and tries to apply the small amount of banking knowledge he has into running his business whenever he can. Jeffrey, welcome to the Collective Quest podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: And we mentioned this before, but you are actually the first guest where Julia and I have also both been on the podcast. Yes. So this is a first yeah. of many, I think, which I'm, is really I'm, great. I'm,
2: like I mentioned, I'm high-key the setup. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it also does feel like a bit of an interview, but like- We're a person as well. Yeah, for
1: yeah, those true. just listening, <laughs> we're a person. Yeah. Very um, exciting. And where we wanted to start was, can you tell us more about your work with Equal Ed and what specifically you do in your role in that organization? Yeah,
2: so I think my role has kind of changed and developed as we've gone along. And as the organization has grown, I feel like I've also kind of grown up with it. So at the moment, my role is to kind of just oversee the day-to-day operations of everything. So everything from, you know, pro- offices doing projects and they want to clarify Certain deliverables with me to writing up proposals with people and potential clients reaching out to us, coming up with new ideas and new projects to run, and you know trying to analyse different areas to meet needs all the way down to the boring stuff like tax and accounting. I YouTube how to write a balance sheet a few weeks ago <laughs> to do the taxes. Um, boring but important. Boring but important. And I realised, man, am I bad at maths? But, you know. Um, so that's kind of just overall role. Just make sure I provide the right guidance to my people. Find gaps in areas that we're really passionate about and want to work on and then just overall admin and make sure the company is actually, you know, abiding by laws and still afloat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I think Julia's got a lot of questions to do with like the business side of things because that's where her mind and her experience lies. I think I'm really interested in the social impact side. Yeah. And obviously I'm also in the social impact space working for a social enterprise. And the thing that I find with people in the social impact space is they often have early experiences mm-hmm. in their life that have shaped what they're doing now and that's the same for me with obviously we've talked about my own educational experiences I guess I'm really keen to hear about what early life experiences shaped your decision to not go into neuroscience research to not go into banking and actually have the awareness to say these things aren't for me and dive pretty much full-time into into equal ed
2: yeah I think for me I guess it would be relatively early but then maybe also late talking about stage of development it was around like year 11 year 12. Uh, I was very fortunate that I uh, was selected to be in a selective school. So I went to Melbourne High for the last four years of my high school schooling. And having grown up in the outer Western suburbs, that was kind of a bit of a culture shock going to Melbourne High, looking at you know just the caliber of people around me, but then also the co-curricular opportunities that were available. Like it was like, you could do rowing, you could do cadets, you can do like karate. And I'm like, <laughs> what? There were like you know, 50 to hundred different options and at my old school that wasn't available and the other thing was that academia and I guess academic performance was actually something that people strive for and was I guess respected Mm -hmm. I think that kind of culture I I was lucky because I I went to like kind of like a private school in the area as well a very big one but academics was still a thing but I also had a lot of friends who went to Schools in my area where it wasn't, and I think it was you know a combination of that combining in year eleven when I did one VC subject and I didn't work particularly hard, wasn't particularly smart, but I ended up scoring a forty seven, which is like top three percent of the state. (laughs) Um, But I realized that a lot of that was due to the surroundings that I had. It was Mm. due to the peers around me, the teachers, the resources, tutoring that I was given. And then so many people in, you know, my community isn't afforded that. And so that kind of sparked something within me to say, I want to kind of give back. And then, you know, in year 12, I took some leadership positions, realized that I can actually, I think a pivotal moment, it's something really like now looking back, not a huge thing. I don't think about it a lot, but I was um, environment captain of during year 12 and it's not a huge role, but I think we, we used to run like events, an event every year called a summit and we would invite external workshops, people to come in to run them, but they were kind of boring and no one really liked them. And we'd get like 10, 15, 20 participants from school when other clubs, you know, the cool kid clubs would get like 50 to a hundred. So yeah, I kind of overhauled that and we kind of came up with our own workshops and it wasn't a huge deal, but I think that was the spark that combined together my realization of things I wanted to change. And this... Realisation that, hang on a second, I can do things differently and actually have the capability to make the changes I want to see.
1: I've got another follow-up question before we dive into the business. When you noticed the disparities, was that something that grew over time or was it like flipping off the switch like, oh shit, like there's a huge difference Mm -hmm. in the opportunities available in this school and this private sector compared to those who may be from the West and in public schools?
2: I think the realisation that a disparity exists – was a bit of a flip. It was like, oh my God, I got my results back and oh my God, wait, I wouldn't have gotten this result if I didn't go to Melbourne High. Mm. But the realisation of the roots of that disparity and what that disparity looked like definitely developed over time. When I first went in, I just knew, okay, there's a difference. I wouldn't have gotten this score if I wasn't at the school I was at. But over time I realised, and I, I, this is something that I, I use to visualise for, I guess, you know, people around me, new volunteers coming in, I can walk into a school, a public school, a random public school in the outer western suburbs and the environment I would I would see and observe, the, the people I would interact with, the resources and teachers that they would have and the resources teachers would have would be completely different to if I drove 40 kilometers east and ended in Kew or, you know, in Canterbury and walked into a random school there. The resources, again, the teachers, um, you know, everything would be different. What the culture is would be different. And I think that's Something that took time to realize, and then other layers on top of that like you've got different communities, you've got diverse people from diverse backgrounds within different schools, and how those school environments further interact with them um, also leads to disparities. So, mm. you know, realizing the roots and the depths took time, but I think the realization itself was at that moment I was like, hold up, I would not have gotten this if I didn't go to Melbourne High.
1: I've got like a hundred more
0: I know. Oh, <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God.
1: I've got one, which yeah. I actually wanted to, to ask at the start, but I felt like it was, it was kind of like a jarring entrance into it. Yeah. yeah.
0: And we were like, calm down.
1: <laughs> so we have very similar upbringings. Mm. You were born in Hong Kong, moved over at a very young age at three. And and I was born in Singapore and also moved over to Melbourne's West when I was three. Dude,
2: we could pretty much be twins. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. When's your birthday?
2: April 3rd. Oh, okay. When's yours? Oh, Happy
1: birthday. Oh, thank
2: you. Thank you. Yeah. When May 18th. May 18th. It's yeah. oh, not too bad. I think like I've actually, I think we've got mutual connections. That yeah. Did, they didn't necessarily mistake us, but I was in like. They definitely You, did. you look like Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not though. Yeah. He's better looking out if
1: here. <laughs> here we go. This podcast is just complimented me. The whole time. I know. <laughs> but I think. Where I wanted to start with that, with that kind of that migrant experience, and I always think back to my own experience, potentially growing up in Singapore for, at a young age, then coming over to Australia and obviously having differences in opportunity, I always look at almost the counterfactual. Like if my parents never moved mm-hmm. from Singapore and I wanted to work in the social impact space, that doesn't exist in Singapore. And I wondered if you have you know, any thoughts on that or if that's influenced your thinking about what you're doing now with Equal Ed
2: this is crazy because I was actually thinking about this exact same thought on the drive here.
1: Like I, I was I told you, this have our been, brothers, this I freaky. told you it
2: wouldn't have been <laughs> yeah. a no, like, question. Like straight up. I was, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know why I think I was, I was listening to the Cantonese songs because I have Cantonese playlists. And I, I still Love listen to that. it. Love yep. that. Yeah. And I think it was the, a particular Cantonese song. It, like I, I always think about like quite regularly think about what my life would be like if I never moved to Australia or my, if my parents never moved us to Australia the question was like, would I be in the social impact space, right? And
1: Or just or, or, how it influences how, you how it influences generally,
2: me. yeah. I think one, I might've been a lot more, I guess, shy and quiet because I was a very shy kid. Maybe all kids were shy, but I was like, hide behind my mom, can't speak to my auntie type of shy. I'm yeah. like, wow. I don't see you every day. I don't know who you are. <laughs> like, you know, I think it's also a societal impact as well. I think Australian society does focus on social issues a bit more in in, in our education space. I think the people I surround myself with who had the fortune to meet also had an influence. And I think in Hong Kong that might be less likely and the societal pressures and just overall, you know, economical pressures as well would have kind of driven me down a path more towards, hey, let's get a stable job, stuff like that. To be honest, I don't even know if I would have gone to uni because getting into uni in Hong Kong is not easy. There's, mm. there's not a lot of opportunities to go to uni. My family who still live in Hong Kong, like my cousins, not all of them went to uni. Here, I guess, at least within my friendship circles, going to uni was almost a given. I think all that combines together. I don't think I would be the same person with the same outlook, with the same, even personality and, and personality traits. I was thinking to myself in the car, if I was to work in this like social impact field, I most probably won't be running my own thing. I'd probably be a social worker. Mm-hmm. or something like that, which in itself is is great but just different to what I'm doing and also arguably a different person. I don't think I'd be as outgoing. I don't think I'd take as much risks and I don't think I'd have mm-hmm. as much belief in what I can achieve mm-hmm. as I do now.
1: So, so huge yeah.
2: impacts. Huge impacts.
1: Yeah, massive. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. That's, can I ask my yes,
1: question? Please. <laughs> I, I still have a hundred questions but you I know.
0: Uh, We're trying to be so polite <laughs> with each
1: other.
0: <laughs> so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm really interested in knowing – what made you want to work on something that is your own rather mm. than still doing something in the social impact space, but for someone else or for a particular organization?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. I think it was like part serendipity, like kind of like accident mm. and part me just wanting to have, a, like I had a vision about what I wanted to change and I wanted to be able to have the freedom to do exactly that and not have to ask people (laughs) or report back to people. And I think that came from almost a fear sometimes where if there was someone else that I needed to ask, I was afraid to ask, but it was my own thing that I can just do. Do whatever you want. Exactly. So that was half of it. The other half of it was Equal Ed kind of started with me wanting to volunteer for another organisation. I actually cold called community centres and Wyndham CEC, uh, so Wyndham Community and Education Centre picked up and, think they were, I can't remember how many I called, but they were definitely the ones that took me more seriously. I was a 16 year old year 11 kid. Like, you know, they, they took me seriously. I remember I wrote like a, at the end of year 11, I wrote a, a four page, one page proposal on Microsoft yeah. word, <laughs> just top points. It was horrible. I, I don't think I have it anymore. Thank God. Then they were like, Hey, we have like a huge community who are humanitarian migrants from Karen background from Burma. they would love to have this opportunity no one's ever done this before and they gave me a lot of freedom too uh, I also happened to have connections with a local selective school so Suzanne Corey from my time mm-hmm. in high school and there was a one-year gap between when I wanted to do it and when I actually did it in year 12 because I wanted to focus on, on my thing in year 12 and, and on VCE and I think that, that like I mentioned before the opportunities I got in leadership in year 12 further stoke the fire to start something myself. And then Wyndham CEC giving me the freedom to organize their own tutors. And they took us under their wing, but yeah. also gave us the autonomy to run it as our own well, was really, really cool. And it also showed me that, hey, I can do this. And again, looking back, it wasn't like a, whoa, huge achievement. But I think at the time, I no one ever told me that I could do it. And I never thought that I could organize you know, 15 plus volunteers. By the end of the first year, I think we had maybe 40 to 50 students across like three, four days of the week. That, wow. was, that was, you know, for me, I was like, wow, if I could do this, then maybe I could do more. That's how it kind of spir- spiralled from there. Yeah. So, so that's
0: amazing. Yeah. So just to, I guess, clarify and confirm, because mm. you obviously are very young. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so are you saying that you started Ed when you were in year 12?
2: Yeah, right after year 12. So when I was 17.
0: Wow. You've stumped my age. (laughs) I started my business at 20 and I thought I was young. (laughs) But wow. So 17. And so how many years has it been now?
2: So five years. Five years. Amazing.
0: Wow. And you still love doing it?
2: Still love doing it. And it's definitely changed, you know, what we've done. Like when it first started, it was literally just a small community program. Of course. Now, where we still maintain that part and we still provide that service to now more people across more locations. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we do other stuff too. So, yeah. yeah.
0: And when did it become, I guess, that penny drop moment for you where it goes from like, You know, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine when you're 17, you're starting off. This idea is exciting. It's fantastic. Uh, A lot of volunteer base. You're doing it because of passion and you love it. And then when it clips over to this moment where it's like, actually, this is a business now. I remember that moment for me, but what was it like for you when you're like, okay, this is it?
2: Yeah. I think it's probably like, I don't know why I have this distinct memory of like a cold, winter (laughs) evening. And I'm chatting with like another volunteer who's my mate in a parking lot. But I think the flip of the switch was I was about to graduate. I realized that once I'm gone, then well, obviously someone else would need to lead it, which is completely fine. But then if it kept being volunteer based, it meant that every three years, someone else would need to step in. And Mm -hmm. that really stemmed the ability for long-term goals. And I also realized at that point in time that we were able to run on a zero funding model for the first, I think three years. By zero funding, we literally got no monetary funding. It was just maybe resources and space Mm -hmm. and that's it. And, you know, outreach workers, maybe calling families. And we were proud of that. We were like, well, a lot of people say you need money or you need funding, you need all this stuff to start stuff. We we did this without that. But then we also realised for sustainability, you need money to retain talent. And I think another realisation was, hey, well, in the sometimes social impact sector because it's not as – I guess, lucrative as the corporate sector, sometimes you get less talent. We were just thinking to ourselves, how can we create a organisation that is able to retain talent, is able to do the things that we want to do, fill in the gaps that maybe other funding bodies wouldn't fill in. And that's when we realised maybe the social enterprise route will be what we're looking for. At a very similar time, we were running a workshop-based programme with a school. And the school after the first pilot year was like why? Uh, why are you not charging us? We we pay thousands to other companies <laughs> for this stuff. Next year, charge us. Yeah. And we're like, oh my god, that was god. really nice for the school. That yeah. was super nice for the school. And and we're like, oh my god, we can we can we can do this. Yeah. Let, let's, let's charge them. Yeah. And so that that's kind of where it started.
0: Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Wow. I'm like I'm in awe because I think that's such an exciting journey that you've just described within five years to be where you are now and just go okay. I've converted it to a business. Yeah,
2: we've still got a long way to go, definitely. I mean, sometimes I still look at the bank accounts and I'm like, oh, I don't know if we're going to be here next year, but let's, let's you know, cross it that bridge and get to it. It is
0: always the case in business and I think, you know, I can definitely confirm to you, we always look at a bank account no matter what stage of business we are and we're like, ooh, how do we keep it going? But I'm also really interested in knowing how COVID impacted that business journey and that journey of can I continue doing this? Yeah. Or oh, did it have an impact in 2020 for you?
2: Definitely did. Positive or negative, I'm not sure yet. I think there's a bit of both. Negative in the sense that there was, I guess I'll start with negatives. Negatives in the sense that there was a period in time where we we're actually about to, you know, sign some, you know, contracts or MOUs and get some funding for certain things. And they just suspended mm. those programs. And we were just unsure about the future. We were just unsure about what to do. And so we just kept doing our homework club based or like free economic support based programs, but there was no money coming in. And I felt quite lost for maybe two, three months of last year where I just didn't know what was going. On. I knew that this would be over, but I just didn't know what's next. But I still yeah. had some faith that, you know, once it's over, I'll figure it out. So that was the kind of, you know, not so good stuff. And I think it also made me lose momentum a little bit And even now, I'm still trying to pick myself up and pick my momentum back up. What I mean by that is that drive, but also the discipline. Before COVID, I think being able to work at Combank, do uni and then do this and other co-critical stuff all at the same time. I built a certain level of discipline about how I run my day yeah. and how I get my stuff done. That
0: sounds familiar. 4 a.m. wake-ups, Different.
2: <laughs> <is Yeah>. <laughs> no, 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 4 a.m. bed <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Um,
2: yeah, but I think like COVID was just like I didn't want to sleep because I felt like I haven't done – my stuff yet, but then I didn't want to wake up because there was nothing to do.
0: Dilemma. So, <laughs> <It's laughs>
2: yeah. Right. I kind of lost that routine and that discipline. And yeah. even to this day, I think I'm really trying to get that back because especially when you're working from home and um, I was just chatting with Michael before this, like how my team's very much transitioned to an kind of online work from home model. But that also requires a lot of discipline from my end and I don't get tasks set for me. I need to find tasks to do and this task might only have an impact six months down the line. So I need to really do that. And without that discipline and without the momentum, it was it, it still is hard. So I'm still trying to get that back. So that was definitely a negative. But positives is it really made us innovate. Mm-hmm. And I think without COVID, without the innovation that we did in COVID, there are some ideas of what we want to do next that i'm super excited for that would never happen and these innovations are just using technology Mm -hmm. based how do you create models to use technology and and realizing that technology actually increases access so how can we utilize this tool to increase access because i think access is a huge part of equity Mm-hmm. Um, in, especially in education.
0: Amazing. And do you think that because of COVID, and I really like how you spoke about the negatives and then the positives aspects as well, that some of these innovations and ideas that you have, COVID essentially is fast tracking that mm. process for you. And do you think in the long run, maybe in a few years' time, when you look back at this particular phase, that COVID has essentially helped shorten some of the you know planning period and timelines for you?
2: Yeah, I, I would definitely think so. And I would think it's also adoption of these models by the general public or by the Mm. public that we serve because of COVID they've been forced to adopt new models and I think that they might be more open to these new models because they've had to experience it or or adopt it and also it's a huge trial phase where you know with online schooling people now realize what works and what doesn't work which means that we didn't have to try and error it. You know, the system did. That innovation stage also shortened. So I think it's it's shortened innovation and idea generation and it also hopefully will shorten adoption because yeah. people are now open to the
1: idea of this. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. We're finding the same thing even like the issue you talk about with accessibility. We found that with the work that we're doing across Melbourne's West, actually we had a higher attendance at workshops because they're all online yeah. and people in home they had nothing to do. And those that didn't wanna travel could then just jump onto a workshop. So what you said about accessibility, such a key part of, of equity is so true. Julie and I have talked about our own experiences of, of burnout and, and, and stress really going through COVID-19. Mm. I guess as a leader of your own organization, how did you firstly manage yourself and then those who you were leading? I'll start with myself first.
2: Not well at the start, (laughs) that's for sure. I think it was, again, I touched on this just previously. It it was less like I've got so much work that I'm burning out, but I'm so directionless that I feel almost like I'm stuck in limbo. Mm. I don't know when this is going to end. I know it will end sometime and I know I'll need to be ready for when it ends, but I also don't have enough information to prepare myself. So that was really hard. I think for my people, this is an analogy that comes to mind often where – because I was thinking about, well, all these large organizations are really struggling. I didn't actually find us struggling that much when we transitioned to online delivery. There was definitely times when my volunteers or my staff really hated the online delivery model because we were you know too many students in one room and we couldn't teach them or coordinating with other staff members or volunteers was hard because you couldn't see them face-to-face, you couldn't get the information across. But I think- what I realized was being so small and having just really transitioned into a full business model pretty much like six months or nine months ago meant that we were pretty much an ant on the relative scheme of things. And when ants fall from high places because they're so light, they don't get injured, <laughs> right? Compared to something analogy. else, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think that's, that's literally the analogy that came to mind where like we're an ant and that's why we can adapt yeah. because we're so small and we're small enough where it's easy for me. I, I know every- member of my staff and most members of my volunteer base, I can just call them up or speak to them and we can adapt really quickly because we're small. And there's no set procedures, no set policies. We have nothing to lose because we have nothing to begin with. <laughs> you know. <laughs> whereas, whereas organizations can't do that. So I think we were in a yeah. unique position to be more adaptable.
1: Firstly, how you said you're managing yourself poorly at the start, have you developed better systems or routines like moving into 2021?
2: Yeah. I think the gyms opening back up really helped. Yeah. <laughs> <Agreed>. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it definitely helped a lot. And I think like right now I try to go to the gym at least once a day during the weekday. So Monday to Friday, and that really sets a anchor to my routine. And it, it means that it's something where I, that I have to do, that I have to get out of the house. And it's become so much a routine where I feel uncomfortable if I don't do it. And having done that thing, It means that, well, it sets the, it almost sets the, starts ignition to to do the other stuff. So I think I'm definitely a little bit better. Mm. I also try really hard to set my first meeting of every day early. Um, Really?
1: Yeah. Okay, interesting.
2: Because it forces me to wake up. So, (laughs) you know, let's say I have a 9 a.m. meeting. If I don't wake up for that meeting, that's not good. Yeah. But if I have an 11 a.m. meeting, I wanna do stuff before that. I might just go, oh, I can wake up at 10.55 and I'll
0: still be fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll change my alarm when it goes off in the morning and I won't wake up until 10.55. So the two things combined really helps. And I try to keep myself honest. If I start at 10, that's fine. Finish at six or finish at seven. Finish when you get the stuff that you planned on the day done. Keep honest. It doesn't matter when you start as long as you're not wasting other people's time by being late or missing meetings. And you get the stuff that you said you'd get done, done. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. Exercise for me as well has, has been, like you said, that anchor or like that keystone habit where everything kind of falls into place. Because when I, when I exercise that day, then I sleep better that night. Mm-hmm. Then I wake up earlier and have a better quality sleep and then it kind of just goes into an upward spiral. Yeah.
0: I, was, I can't comment on exercise because, as you know, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> exercise is not my thing. But I have started doing meditation. I'm really Thanks proud of to, you. Yeah, yeah I'm really proud of you. Thanks to Michael's high recommendation, it's
1: it's bloody hard. It is hard. I might try that
2: out because like a lot of people have recommended recommended uh, recommended recommendation <laughs> <laughs> recommended <laughs> meditation. And I don't know, like, can I throw this back around to you? Like, Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> has it has it improved? Like,
0: look, I probably I don't think I've in any way probably doing it correct because I find it quite hard and challenging, and I'm following an app. But what I've been doing is – because it has been quite stressful – where I can't go to sleep or I can't tell myself to stop thinking about the business or thinking and planning ahead mm. in the evening, I'll turn the app on and just attempt to do it. So that's kind of like I guess – Which thing app that are you I'm, using? Headspace? Yeah,
1: that's a good one. Yeah, yeah.
0: to try to like – because I tend to fall asleep, yeah. which you're not meant to. <laughs>
1: you just fall asleep when you it
0: Oh, but probably I'd last – I try to do two sessions or like two of those little, yeah. you know, five minutes or yeah, whatever. Yeah. The first one's pretty good and then yeah. the second one I'm like, oh, let's try again and do another round. Next thing you know, I'm fast asleep. But in a way I kind of go, well, at least that put my mind to sleep, mm. you know, and stopped me from thinking yeah. about work.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Yeah. I, look, I think the main thing is – When people start meditation, they get caught up in, am I doing it correctly? Mm. And if you want to make it really accessible, it's just really checking your thoughts. Mm. So I use the analogy of if you had a roommate that was constantly mean to you, Mm. just saying nasty stuff, you're not good enough, you didn't do that very well, you didn't clean this great, eventually you'd tell that roommate to shut up. But we don't tell that to our thoughts. And if you view your thoughts as this roommate that just will not shut up and you need to put some distance between it, that's kind of like what meditation is, is that mm-hmm. awareness or that active awareness of these thoughts are kind of unbidden. They're not coming from my consciousness. Mm-hmm. They're coming from somewhere else. And I can decide whether they have an impact on me or not. I can think them and I can separate myself from 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 yeah. them and say, "Do I? does this thought serve me? No, well then just let it go. Mm-hmm. And that's really just the basics of mindfulness. And when you do that distancing of the thought, and letting it go, that's the equivalent of one bicep curl for your mind. Because mm. back in the day, literally, like the only people that would exercise would, was that dude in the leopard print, you know, <laughs> bikini and a handlebar mustache. And people yeah. thought that was ridiculous to, yeah. to physically exercise your body. And we're going through the same thing with meditation. Meditation mm. is literally just exercise mm. for the mind. And the better that you can actually distance yourself from weird thoughts or negative thoughts and replace them or substitute them with just positive thoughts, it has a huge impact on just how you interpret life. Because mm. yeah. the quality of your life is really the quality of your mind and your yeah. thoughts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can I just quickly add to that, which we're totally sidetracking, but <laughs> beneficial from a business perspective as well. Uh, we started doing a training program and for the first time I brought in a professional to train with the entire team on passionate skills and handling conflict. And I thought it was really interesting because he described conflict not as like, I'm having an argument with you, Mm -hmm. more so as there's a gap opening in our day-to-day work or day-to-day life. And yeah, he talks about, you know, certain strategies to go through this. And one of them is this, the first step is about being open, realizing what you want and separating that thought process and not letting yourself fall into this victim stage of like, yeah, self-conflict and self-anger and all of that kind of thing, but being really clear about your emotions and then moving on to the next piece, which is resourcefulness, finding the solution. I wish I did this (laughs) pre-COVID, but anyway, (laughs) because I think it would be very helpful. And then going from resourcefulness into uh, persistence and actually putting it into action and making sure you come back to openness. And, you know, obviously our team has become so much more aware of that Mm -hmm. and realising, you know, the language you use, how you approach a situation. And I think one thing that I really took away from that is this notion of like you can't control other people's feelings mm. like you can't beat yourself up for or like this person made me feel this way it's actually not it's it's my own feeling mm. that I'm having to deal with and I think this couples really nicely with my attempt at meditation and my attempt at kind of dealing with business and yeah life in general
1: yeah no I think that's, <laughs> that's really important I, I guess Jeff is there any other habits that you have besides exercise that help with that either your mindset or just keeping up that energy
2: I think it's just positive self-talk and -hmm. I think it's being aware of my self-talk. And I think this is something that I guess you can call a habit, but something I've kind of reflected on, realized I'm doing it and wanted to do more of, which is I've almost conditioned myself that when something bad happens, my immediate reaction is like, hell yeah, let's do it. Does does that kind of make sense? Because I think like when, when something happens around you, People people feel like their, their natural response is is kind of just whatever it is. And a lot of people might have negative natural responses to, I guess, undesirable situations. I think I combine this with another thing, which is before I start a venture that I think is risky or before I do something that I think is going to be hard, expect there to be bad things or undesirable things happening that might stop me or make it harder for me to get to my goal because that's life, right? Like unexpected things will happen. It's not if they happen, it's they will happen. And it's not the people who, when nothing bad ever happens to them that succeed. It's the people who know how to find solutions around or over yeah. or through these things that succeed. So I expect these things to happen. That's the one thing. And the second thing is then when they do happen, I've almost conditioned myself to have a response where my natural immediate response is one, okay, hells yeah, finally it's happened. So I know what the bad thing is now. Cause previously I was just like a bad thing will happen, but I don't know what, but I'm ready. Now it's like, I know what it is. So I can start working around a solution. And I think whenever there's adversity, again, my natural reaction is like, well, the harder you push me. And I kind of almost talk to the universe. I don't know if that makes sense, but (laughs) I kind of, there's kind of like this thing where I'm like, the harder the circumstances, I guess, around me, Or or the more the circumstances around me position me for failure, the more I want to succeed. And the less pressure I have to succeed because if I looked at this objectively, the circumstances were against me. So if I failed, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. Pick myself up, learn from it, do it again. But if I do succeed, then I've done something really awesome. So then now this pressure of I'm scared to fail is over and I kind of see these negative circumstances, quote unquote negative circumstances as removing that pressure of fear of failure because I'm saying, well, the circumstances were kind of against me. There's no particular reason for me to succeed, but I know I can. So now I'm excited, now I'm pumped up and now I wanna prove the circumstance wrong.
1: How'd you cultivate that? Because that is a very, very mature way of thinking about things. And it's also seems like you've developed that from quite an early age. I think it was
2: (laughs) probably came from uni. Uh, well, like, I I think it came from Equal Ed combined with uni because Equal Ed really started picking up and it was still like a, you know, community-based organization, first year uni, new environment, everything was new. And I distinctly remember that when we first tried to launch our Still a Volunteer program back you know, in 2016 when we first started, it didn't work out that well because I had a lab that day on the day it launched, so I wasn't there. No one knew what was going on. There were people and and parents coming in to sign up because there was a communication error uh, and miscommunication, language barriers, et cetera. And they thought that the first session was to sign up, which meant that we got like 60 extra signups. And I was on my own with no experience trying to schedule these students in. And the first time you schedule something, it's really hard because you need to sort them by year level. And then by the time they're available, with the time that tutors are available, but keeping in mind that a family could have three siblings in three different year levels and you make the parent come three times in a week, (laughs) that also really sucks. And so I, I had to push back and postpone. And then I remember, you know, people around me being like, Hey, what's going on? I had like 15, 20 tutors waiting. And there was this one distinct moment. I think I was still 17 at this time. I went up to my mom and I was like, oh, and, and also like my dad didn't understand what volunteering was.
1: <laughs> <So> <laughs> we'll, we'll touch yeah. on that later. Just Hold on.
2: <laughs> yeah. um, I went to my mom like, mom, I don't know what I'm doing. I kind of want this to stop. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And mm. my mom, like, I'm like, I, it's really hard. And mom's like, well, if it's hard, then stop. Because my mom obviously wants me to focus on uni. Yeah. And I think it was at that point where I was like, no, I can't. Like I just got to <laughs> keep going. Yeah. And so being able to sort that out really helped. And then sorting through the next thing, which was by this time, it was June, we'd started. But then because there were 60 signups, I got more tutors and volunteers and, you know, did more training with them, stuff like that, got it started. But then because such a large delay had gone in between sign up and, you know, the actual classes and a lot of people just sign up without wanting to come, we ended up with maybe 12 students coming across the entire week which means that we would have tutors come in middle of May, middle of June and no one would rock up to their class. And we'd just sit there for half an hour waiting and it's getting dark, it's getting cold and they just finished a full day of school. And then I'm like, sorry guys, I'm going to send you home. And that felt really, really horrible. So yeah. this, I didn't have any resilience back then. I, I felt really, really crap. But then I think as student numbers started picking up, I was like, wow, whenever there's an adversity, I actually have the resources to go over it. So now it, it kind of conditioned me to say, well, what's the solution? I'm excited about finding a solution. Adversity and these things happen and it's out of my control, but the solutions are the parts that excite me. And it's about finding these solutions. And then other stuff like uni, me being really bad with time management. And then <laughs> I remember, you know, there was this time where I had an exam the next day. I thought it was like the next week. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> and um, I rocked up to uni to study. I was like, oh, I've got a whole week, easy. My last exam, multiple choice, no worries. <laughs> I also <laughs> didn't really go to any lectures or re-watched any lectures. And then my mate saw me. He's like, Hey, you ready for like the eight am exam tomorrow? I'm like, What exam? <laughs> and that experience also kind of helped. I always tie back to it, uh, especially for when I'm for the rest of uni and I feel really stressed out about an assignment. It is well, hey, like. I studied pretty much the whole course in one night and then did fairly well in the exam. So I was like, well, if I can do that, then it's, this is again, just an exciting thing for me to then look back on in a week or two and say, wow, that was hard, but I did it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So it's really that trial and error. Yeah. But also some people just don't reflect on their experiences like that. Mm. So it takes not only having those experiences because inevitably everyone's going to run into moments of like that. Oh shit moment. Mm. Or like, or, I'm fucked. Moment, <laughs> yeah, kind of, and it takes I think someone quite mature in their thinking to actually step back and think, hold on, that experience has taught me something, and this is it, yeah. mm-hmm. and that doesn't come naturally to everyone, I don't think. I do have a segue. You talked about your parents, yeah. and one of the one of the big ones that I wanted, one of the big questions I had, was really around coming to Australia. Speaking from my experience, so I'm, I've got a bit of a bias here. Obviously, my parents' very low education levels have come to Melbourne's West, quite poor have worked whatever jobs they could get, entry level, very similar to Julia's uh, upbringing as well. They obviously had very high expectations of their children going to great schools, going further than they could and getting to a point where they could no longer help them with their education and obviously having access to university is a world that they just never had access to. Mm I guess going to an alternate route, like we're all sitting around this table, we're not doctors, we're not lawyers, we're not engineers. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck it, we don't want to be there <laughs> Exactly.
0: <laughs>
1: How do you, like We've we've talked about overcoming the parental expectations mm-hmm. and even the family expectations, which is even harder sometimes, the broader yeah. extended family. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate sort of that period?
2: First of all, I think I'm very fortunate that my parents are, really supportive and, and really, I guess, understanding. I was actually working at ComBank before I dived in full time into Equal Ed. Mm. And I was finding it really hard to just hand in that resignation because I'm like, the dangle, like, you know, career pathways and like, you know, straight route and, you know, good pay and bonuses. And my dad was literally the one that's like, hey, look, like the road is rarely straight and you don't know what's around the bend. You're still young. You have this opportunity. Go and take it. We are still can support you. We can still support ourselves. You don't have any obligations. Go ahead and do it. So I was really fortunate to have that. And I think what I did have to navigate though was when it was a volunteering venture. And especially when I was younger and going through that transition period, it was also a transition period between childhood or teenage years into young adulthood, where my parents had to understand that I had the capacity to make decisions for myself and that these decisions weren't spur of the moment, but also you know, thought ahead or I'm doing things I genuinely feel passionate about. And I think that's when maybe, I think my dad didn't quite understand. He would say, well, are you earning money from this? It's, well, no, then why are you doing it? You are taking time out of your studies, which is what you should be focusing on to do this. Why are you sacrificing this for, for no reason? I think that took a while for him to understand. And then for the longest time, he didn't know what I was doing. Like, well, okay, you're volunteering, but what are you doing? Yeah. What do you do? And then even when I transitioned it into a business, how do I translate social enterprise into Cantonese? Yes. (laughs) You know, I can't. Is there a word for it? I don't think there is. (laughs) There might be now, but like I I definitely don't know it. That was really hard. And then it's hard for them to understand if they don't know what you're doing. Again, I'm very, very fortunate that I feel like my dad is the youngest of five siblings. So he moved to Australia after my uncle moved to Australia, his older brother. And my cousins, my uncle's sons Mm -hmm. are 18 years older than me, the youngest one. And the other one's like, you know, maybe 20 years older than me. So Um, they went through the whole uni process and then getting a job process. One of them worked really, really hard and got a PhD. So, and again, I'm very fortunate that my parents are never like, why didn't you have a PhD? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're like, if you want one, we'd be very proud, but you don't have to get one. (laughs) You know, I think that type of thing made them feel a bit more secure that, in my generation, we'll go to uni and Mm. we'll, we'll figure out a way and that things will be all right. So they don't have that fear of like, if he doesn't do, you know, if Jeff doesn't go down that straight path with a clear trajectory, he's gonna, you know, be living on the streets or like have a really hard life. I think they have that faith that we'll be okay. And I think they also understand that they worked really hard to build a life so that I could have opportunities. And that's my perspective too. I think one of the greatest like reasons why I quit my job and did equal ed full-time was that realization that my parents worked really, really hard to give me the stability to have opportunities and choices. And if I didn't use those opportunities and choices and take hold of them, I wouldn't be doing right by them almost. So I think that was, you know, my parents' perspective on it. And they're, they're, they're pretty chill about it. Um, I'm really fortunate because of that. And Yeah, maybe there's a bit of pride involved in it too. Like maybe they have a bit of pride about what I I do as well. I I don't know. I've never spoken to them about it in in detail, but, you know, I feel like they're happy with what I'm doing and that I'm making good use of my time.
0: I think you summed it up really nicely about the fact that they worked so hard for you to have that opportunity Mm -hmm. and choices. And I think that's very similar for both of us too, isn't it, Yeah, Yeah. it definitely is. (sighs) Yeah.
1: Look, I went through the same thing, you know, with Chase. When I was running Chase, both parents didn't understand it. Exactly what you said. (laughs) Why are you sacrificing time away from studies or paid work or a full-time job Mm. to volunteer for this organization? And it was only after one or two years of doing it, they started to realize the impact that it was having in the community. Mm. It did help that I got some recognition with, you know, some awards and, and, and whatnot. But they never actually explicitly said to me, we support you but they never placed really hard expectations that what I'm doing was either wrong or they never shamed me into thinking what I was doing was wrong or guilted me in thinking what I'm doing is not doing right by them mm. because they gave me this opportunity. Now, I'm, now I need to pay them back. Mm. Or what I find really interesting about your story is that your dad simultaneously didn't really know what you were doing and didn't understand the concept of volunteering, but then still encouraged you to do it. That
2: just goes to show that my dad really just wanted what's best for me. Right. He, he (laughs) at the start was like, well, he's still a kid. He's 17. Maybe he doesn't know what's best. And then at the end realized I've proven myself over time. And I think getting that job at Combank really helped. Like he's like, well, this guy can get a job. Like this guy is capable of getting a job at a bank. So, you know, um, people trust him with money. What? Like, okay, cool. He's, He's all right. I think that was a bit of a turning point. At the end of the day, he was trying to make sure that I was making the right decisions. And when he was supporting me, that was when he realized that I was old enough and mature enough and had enough experience and there was enough potential in equal ed. That was the right choice. And I was just scared. And he was trying to tell me lessons that he'd learned to take away the fear. Mm. But throughout the whole process, he, he's, it was really my future over his expectation for both my parents, which I'm very, very grateful for.
1: Look, we're coming up towards the end of the podcast. One really pressing question that I had was <laughs> to throw back to that positive self-talk was around the imposter syndrome yeah. and mm. how you navigate feelings of, oh my God, I'm so young, yet I'm leading so many people. Oh my God, I'm so young and they're trusting me so much money. How do you deal with that sense of just inadequacy? Obviously it's not true, but how do you deal with that voice that tells you that you're not doing good enough or mm-hmm. things could be better? It's something that I continue to work with and then
2: sometimes struggle with to this day. I think the biggest struggle is when particular clients ask me to do quotes. That, that's really hard because I'm like, how do I, it, it's putting a number on what I think I'm worth. Yeah. And that's when it really clearly shows like, okay, I don't know how much you're willing to pay. I don't know how much other people are charging. This is how much I think I'm worth. Sometimes I feel like I'm underpriced and that comes from this feeling of why would you pay me for this, right? What makes you want to pay me for this? I think that's the most obvious and and in your face times that where, where inadequacy kind of really plays in and actually has an effect. Most of the other times though, I think I deal with it by looking back at what I've achieved previously. Back to reflection, right? I use anchors of the times where I've had a really, really tough time and how I've overcome it to overcome any doubts that I have right now, which is like, well, and, and when I go through tough times now, I also see it as an anchor and a tool I can use for the future. And by anchors, I mean it's a particular point in time where I distinctly remember feeling inadequate, feeling like maybe I can't do this, feeling like things are really, really hard. And then me reacting by pushing through it and finding a way around it and then succeeding afterwards. Tying these two things together helps me today because I look back and I said, well, that was really tough, wasn't it? Like I thought I couldn't do it, but now I can. And I think I'm also very fortunate to have a very, very supportive team and a team that – where I feel just very fortunate to have met people where they created a culture that doesn't make me question whether or not I deserve to be there, Mm. but at the same time are very honest about, you know, certain areas or things that they have doubts about. And I think it really, and I've been thinking about this recently, it comes down to they don't question the person. They just question the action or the thing or, or the decision sometimes. And they're really good at conveying that, which yep. makes me feel very secure that one, if they think it's a good idea, it's because it actually is. Two, they respect me enough to respectfully tell me when they see particular issues, I have concerns. And three, they actually trust me to be where I am. I think another thing, maybe slight tangent, is, it's, but related, is I previously struggled when another person on my team was doing really well and doing better than me at a particular job that they're doing, I would say, well, why am I here then, you know? Like (laughs) what makes me deserving of leading you when you're better at your job than me? And then I realized they're supposed to be better at their jobs than me (laughs) because it's their job, right? And I realized that it's not that I need to be the best at everything that's done within my organization. I just need to be the best at extracting excellence out of people that work with me. And if I'm good at doing that, and if I'm well-placed at doing that, if I aim to be the best at doing that, then really I should want everybody else to be better than me at their jobs. So I think that realisation helps a lot as well because before I was like, well, all these people, they're they're high calibre people, why would they want to be led by me if I can't even do their job better than them? Yeah. That wasn't the point.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it's also, you know, you should credit yourself for creating a safe enough space where your team feels comfortable to come to you and say, hey, you know, I want to change this or yes, it is a great idea or no, it's not. A great idea. Um, I think that's really, really important from a leadership perspective as well. You've obviously fostered that kind of relationship within your team for them to do that. Um, I do want to just really quickly touch back on the idea of quoting because I think it's such an important aspect in business, in Soul Trader, in, in everything we do, even in your job. I feel like people tend to shy away from Pricing. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. It could be generalising but I feel like especially if you're associated to Melbourne's West, Mm. suddenly things need to be cheaper Mm. or – things need to be more cost effective. And I've I've always struggled that with that as well with my business, um, you know, like running an event for some, an organisation in Melbourne's West. Suddenly, uh, you know, is there an expectation for me to be lowering my price or to be more cost effective for them? Or And I, I definitely had times where people ask, put together a proposal and I'm sitting there I'm like, ooh, you know, mm. am I doing it right? Mm. You know, is my time really worth that much money? Is my staff time really worth that much money? And it's taken me a long time a really long time (laughs) to kind of talk myself out of that momentum and actually realize that, hey, you know, if I price myself too cheap, people are like, she actually that good, Mm. you know? So I feel like kind of overcoming that factor is really, really important. So I'm really fascinated to know, I guess, have you changed your pricing structure over the five years of working in your organization? You know, how do you kind of, yeah, come down to that point where you are putting in a proposal that is you know, making sure that you're satisfied with it, but also that the client is satisfied with it.
2: Yeah. First three or four years, we weren't charging anything Mm. for anything. So it's really only been like maybe the past year and a bit that I've been doing it and COVID obviously through a spanning thing. So I'm still trying to learn and iterate, but I think I'm starting to realize that it's actually a balance to find the balance, getting as much information as I can is, is really important. So Sometimes I realize that I'm actually afraid to price the client at this rate, not because I'm afraid or or I don't feel like I'm worth it. I'm afraid they won't feel like I'm worth it and Mm -hmm. then I'll end up losing the client. But if I only lowered it, by like a little bit, like a small percentage, I would have got the client and I would have made a loss or anything. I would have actually made a profit or that, that I can then put back in the organization and in the community. And that kind of like leads yeah. me to spiral. So what I've done now is uh, and what I'm starting to learn is wherever possible, I just ask the client, especially on project based service based stuff. What's your budget? Yeah. Let me design a program that fits your needs and your budget. Because depending on your budget and your needs, it changes. And we do tailored programs. You're not buying stuff off the shelf. I think that's helped. Mm-hmm. And then just doing like research, financial statements, stuff like that. You know, they're available. How much cash money uh, do they have in the bank? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> These things are available. So know your clients, know your yeah. potential clients. And I think, yeah, I think some of the fear really is sometimes, I think early on, am I worth this much? But now it's like, well, not. we're still starting out. Not a lot of people know us. Are we worth this much as a client. Yeah. And then, like I mentioned, the spiral of like, if I just hold yeah. a little bit, maybe it, <laughs> stuff like that. We
1: can build our reputation. Yeah. You know, all those different things. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I love it. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. No, no right.
1: <laughs> so the one question I wanted to end with, and I think this is a really great one that I've just made up on the spot, <laughs> is obviously as a founder and as a leader, what advice would you have for, you know, young people coming up think of yourself at 16, 17 that are interested, really passionate about a social cause, what advice would you have for them? I think, can I give two pieces of advice? I'll allow it. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. <laughs>
2: I think the first piece of advice, if you're genuinely passionate about like wanting to change something, just go and try it. You're young. You're not going to, you know, have a lot to lose if you fail. You have, you might lose time, but when you're young, what you actually have is time. So, go out and try it, see where it takes you, you know, put thought into it, model it, you know, make sure that you're putting in effort and maximizing your chance of success, but try it because you being young, young have, have arguably sometimes less to lose than, than others. The other piece of advice is as you are, you might have a big vision or big thing, big or small, right? As, as you grow and as what you're doing grows, don't feel like you need to do everything by yourself. And I think a really important skill to learn is how to collaborate with others, how to trust others with what you're doing and, and create a team that, and an organization that isn't just revolving around you, but revolves around the vision that is shared by a bunch of people
1: and do it together. I love that. And where can people find you and find out more about Equal Ed?
2: Yeah, so we're on LinkedIn, so you can check us out. Um, we're on you know Instagram, Facebook, but mainly check us out on our website because that, that's where most of the info is. You know, Our socials aren't, aren't super active, but equaled.org. So E-Q-U-A-L-E-D.org
1: is where you can find us. You heard Ooh. it here first. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is proudly sponsored by the Victorian Government. The Collective West podcast is a proud recipient of the Department of Fairness, Family and Housing Cold Youth Content Campaign. As part of this series, we'll be interviewing 10 thought leaders from across Melbourne's West, ranging from education, employment, and government. Stay tuned for future episodes. Julia and I are really excited about the range of interviewees that we've got coming up over the next 10 weeks. So stay tuned and stay safe.